And I'm excited about today's message because it really sets up family nights. You see, this Wednesday, family nights resume, and once again, Flourish, Ironman, Revive, and the campuses will be in the same text. Last semester, we were aligned in the book of Mark, and we went through Jesus' Galilean ministry, and so that took us from Mark 1 all the way up until 8. And so today, we are picking up in Mark 8, 27. So if you have your Bibles, flip on over to Mark 8, 27, and we are going to continue because this is Jesus' ministry uh, on the road to Jerusalem, and then it picks up with Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. That's how the book of Mark is broken out into those three parts. And so this will transition us into our family nights. And so just kind of gives us a little taste of it. And once again, I'm excited, one, because I get to be before you, and it's a, a privilege and an opportunity, but also on family nights every Wednesday night. So let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege it is that we get to come before you and we get to open up your word and we get to hear what you have to say to us. Father, I pray that uh, you would not just allow us to hear what you have to say, but you would give us the bold courage to live out your words every single day. Father, help us to live out this truth that we may align ourselves to you, that we may surrender ourselves to you and your truth. And Father, we may not try to insert anything else into that and try to follow it or try to make you in our image, but we realize that we were cast in yours. So Father, I just pray that you'll be there before us right now. Be in our midst and just help us to unashamedly follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's just pick right up. Let's read it. 827. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Verse 29. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Listen, this text should give us great pause. It should serve as a warning for us because when we look at this, we see in 27 through 30, we see that there's this wonderful moment where Peter was being praised for how he rightly responded to a question asked by Jesus. And so we see in this moment that, that, Jesus, that Peter had walked so closely with Jesus and that he had seen so many wonderful things of Jesus that he could answer this question, you're the Messiah. If you think about it up until this point, we've already seen seen what Peter got to experience in his ministry with Jesus. He's gotten to see Jesus heal a paralyzed man and forgive that man of his sins. Basically, in that moment, he was claiming to be God because he forgave sins. And then we've seen him raise people up. We've seen him heal people miraculously. We've seen him calm nature and storms, walk on water, and miraculously feed thousands of people. And so Peter has been exposed to who Jesus is. And so he has experienced this ministry with him. And so when Jesus asked him this question, he says, who do you say I am? He says, the Messiah. 
And we're going to unpack that. And he's praised for it. Matter of fact, Matthew's account, it shows us that it was not because of Peter's own doing, not because of flesh and blood, but because wisdom from the Lord. So in other words, God revealed to him this answer that Jesus was the Messiah. And then in Matthew's account, Jesus would go on to praise Peter and say, upon this truth and upon you, Peter, my rock, I will build my church. And so if you just stop it right there, I think that's where Peter would have liked this to, to end. But this is why I think we can look at the scriptures and in so many different ways we can see the authenticity of the scriptures and the believability of the disciples in so many different ways is because of what they inserted into the scriptures through divine inspiration about themselves. And so literally in the next breath, in the next moment, it says that Jesus was teaching them and it says he was teaching them and that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected. It was necessary. So going through this teaching, and then it gets to Peter boldly rebukes Jesus. Think about that for a second. After all that Peter has witnessed, he just said, you're the Messiah. And then he rebukes Jesus, the Son of God. And immediately, Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. And it's kind of harsh because he says, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And so this should give us great pause and great warning today because what this shows us is how easy it is to, on one hand, be a messenger of God and then the next breath be a messenger of Satan. That should give us great warning and great pause because if we were to think about what do we need to do to make sure that we are messengers of God, we'd say we need to be humble, we need to walk closely with the Lord, we need to read his truth and ask for wisdom from the Holy Spirit and discernment from the Holy Spirit, and we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that Peter walked more closely to Jesus probably than any one of us ever has, and yet he still fell into this trap. So how can we prevent this trap from occurring? Well, I think this text gives us two key points. It gives us two very simple points, and we're really going to take those points and unpack the profound meaning of those points. And so when you look at this, one of the first things that Jesus says after he says, get behind me, Satan, he gives us the first clue. He says, get behind me. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So if we want to avoid following in the trap of being a messenger of Satan, and we want to be a messenger and ambassador of God, the first thing we need to make sure that we're concerned with is God's concerns, not our concerns. What are God's concerns? And right here, Jesus is going to show us what his primary concern was, and it's going to help everything else flow from that. But we've got to make sure that we're not filtering things through our concerns, our selfish ambitions, our desires, the world's desires, the things that we want. We have to make sure that we're filtering the course of our day from the moment we wake up and the fabric of our being is being funneled through what, God, what concerns God above all else. We have to make sure that we're in proper alignment with him. You see, that's what Jesus had told him already in Matthew's account when he said, you're right. When you said that I'm the Messiah, he said, and God revealed this to you. We got to make sure that we're seeking the word of the Lord and God's truth to make sure we understand what concerns God. But where this really shows us what concerns God really comes through 
the questions that Jesus asked, and those questions were building up what I think is one of the most important questions Jesus ever asked. And what he's building up is he's really building up this idea. And if you look at what Peter did, it doesn't seem like what Peter did was all that wrong. Jesus is telling him his purpose in coming. Jesus is telling him that the Son of Man must suffer. And if you're thinking like Peter, you're thinking, you're my friend. I have loved doing ministry with you, Jesus. I have loved being there with you. We have a great life that we're living right now. We have been doing some wonderful things. Look what I've witnessed you doing. Stop talking about your death. And he's saying, surely not. Like, don't don't talk about your death. Peter didn't want to hear it. He liked the life they were living. He liked what they were doing. He was comfortable in that, even though there was a lot in it, but he was comfortable. But again, just think about it from a friendship. You don't want anybody talking about their death. It's uncomfortable. And yet, Jesus took that, what seemingly innocent moment with Peter, and he took it and he says, get behind me, Satan. So what he shows right there is how important this truth really is and how detrimental it is if we begin to distort this truth or water it down or not fixate upon it. And he does that by setting it up with two of the most important questions, but really the most important question he'll ever ask. In verse 27, Peter, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? In other words, what does the world say about me? What is the world saying about who I am, what I came for? What is the world saying? And and he begins to start with this generalization, and the disciples respond, and they say, some say that you're John the Baptist, which is nonsense. So again, you got rumors circulating because John the Baptist baptized Jesus. They were in the same place at the same time. And then some said, Elijah, okay, well, Elijah was supposed to come in power. Jesus came in power, but Elijah, in many ways, like John the Baptist had already been attributed to being Elijah and coming back in that power, right? And so we see rumors circulating and none of it's true. And then some others just say, you're a prophet. You're a really good prophet. You come with a great word from God and you're one of his prophets. That's what the world says. But here's the thing. All of those answers are unsatisfactory and they fall way short in answering the question, ultimately, that Jesus wants to ask every single one of us. The most important question Jesus ever asked was, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is what the world says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly answered, the Messiah, which means the anointed one anointed. You've come for a purpose. The Messiah, it meant you are the Savior of the world. Think about uh, John the Baptist in John 121 proclaiming to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who would come and take away our sins. That is the Messiah. And so he rightly answers, you're the Messiah. And so that is the primary thing we must understand is that when you start looking at this and you start unpacking these two things, they really start working in tandem with one another because when you understand the Messiah and when you understand that Peter innocently said, may this not happen to you, may we not talk about your death, Jesus is saying, I want you to understand what concerns me above all else. And so the things that we can begin to unpack here is one, One of the things I want you to understand is that Jesus is way more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Jesus is way more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Peter was happy. He enjoyed his time with his friend. 
but he needed Peter to understand his sole purpose in coming. The reason in which he came. You see, we can get caught up on a lot of things. And listen, if we chase happiness, we're probably not going to find holiness. We're not going to find that abiding walk with the Lord. And we're not going to be positionally made holy through Jesus if we're chasing after happiness. So don't let happiness become the enemy to holiness. Because here's the thing, if you pursue holiness, you will find happiness. Because there is no greater joy than walking closely with the Lord. If you pursue holiness, you will find happiness. You may not find it the other way around. And so what we have to understand is in this simple little text, what Jesus is telling us is that we must accept the entirety of his message, the entirety of who he is and why he came so that we can truly follow him well, be fully devoted followers, and so that we can become messengers of God and ambassadors of God, and we can be concerned about the things that he is concerned about. And to truly understand what concerns God, you've got to know who he is. You've got to study him, you've got to dig in, and you've got to know what truly concerns him. See, when you begin to study the attributes of God, you begin to look at who he is and what his likeness represents and how he portrays himself to us through the way that he's interacted with us and through his word. And if you begin to study the attributes of God, you'll then begin to, you'll begin to understand that the way that he wants to relate to us are in the ways that he is concerned. You begin to study that he is a loving God, that he is a merciful God, a gracious God. And you begin studying these things, then you begin understanding that, that this is in the manner in which he wants to relate with us. And so these things concern him. And if these things concern him, then we got to make sure that we in turn are doing those things. But here's the thing. It's dangerous that if we begin to look at any other God in any other way. And so I want to use an example that we're all very familiar with to help us understand just how simple and easy it is to get this twisted, to get this distorted. And we can in one breath claim to be a messenger of God, in reality be a messenger of Satan. Because we cannot do anything to diminish the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus and why he came as the Messiah. And so, if any of you guys have social media, then you've seen this thing going around all over the place. And the fact that I know that it's going on means it's going around all the place because I'm not on social media very much. And so the fact of the matter is we uh, just got to witness a prayer lifted up by Representative Emanuel Cleaver at the 117th U.S. Congress. And if you're familiar with what's circulating on social media, you're familiar with how there's an outcry and an uproar at the conclusion of this prayer where he said, amen and a woman. And that should really bother us. It, it should bother us quite a bit because amen in that context means let it be. And Mr. Cleaver, who is an ordained evangelical pastor should know better, and what should really concern us is that he concluded this prayer with a political agenda. So here is somebody who is going as an ambassador and representative and an intermediary, inter, uh, 
interceding on our nation's behalf, interceding on behalf of our nation's leadership, and chose at the conclusion, whenever he's praying to a sovereign God, a holy God, and going to the throne of the Lords to make a pun and make light of a gender identity crisis, of which wouldn't be a problem if we truly understood who our creator was and who we were praying to, which is why I have way more issue with who he prayed to rather than what he said. Because at the conclusion of this prayer, he said, in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and at the name of any God of any other face, at the name of many gods of many other face. There was a comment there because it gets super confusing if you think of monotheism and then Brahma. And so he said, in the name of the monotheistic God, comma, Brahma, comma, the God known by many different names and faiths. We have a problem with that statement because we have a problem with who we're praying to because in that moment, we just sought the petition and help of Satan himself because when you pray to a pagan God, you're praying to Satan. And here's the thing, by making that generalized statement, the monotheistic God, and then also saying Brahma and saying the God known by many different names of many different faiths, what you're saying is, is essentially we're all praying to the same God. And didn't we just look at this moment right here, this exchange between Peter and Jesus, and there's this exchange here because he says, you need to be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. And here's the thing, to be concerned about the things that God is concerned about, you've got to know God. And to know God, we say that we go to the inerrant word that he has given us through divine inspiration, and we study his word to us to learn who he is what his character is, and how we should be concerned about the things that he desires us to be concerned about. But if we're saying that we're all just essentially praying to the same God, then we can go to any truth source, and we can look up anything, and we can call God by any other name, and we're essentially doing the same thing. And while that's par for the course for our pluralistic, tolerant society, it is not biblical. Not at all. And we have such a problem with it because, again, it would radically change the expectations of your life when you change who your God is. And so we can just simply pack the, unpack this by saying, let's just start off with whenever he, he said monotheism, but then he said Brahma. So just quickly, Brahma, the god of Hinduism, while Brahma himself can, can have some monotheistic tendencies, supreme creator. The fact is, is Hinduism, the Hindu faith is largely polytheistic because Hindus have about 330 million gods that they worship and can petition and go to for help. And the way that they receive this information is through their source, which are the Vedas, and in turn, they now understand who their God is. But the problem is, is in this polytheistic uh, faith, God is not knowable, and their God is very distant. And through their, their true sources, their Vedas is what it's called, the Vedas, it shows the way in which they're meant to relate to God really is no relating at all. It's just strictly obedience, and it has way more to do with their karma, and they got to reconcile that problem. So their good deeds must outweigh their bad deeds and hope that they can reach their state of salvation called moksha so that they can become one with their deity, Brahma. 
Does that sound like biblical Christianity? Does that sound like the same God? And that's one problem, but, but, it, but that's a pluralistic, that's a polytheistic God, Brahma. But in his prayer, he also said monotheism, so he kind of left that door open for monotheism, okay? So are we all in a monotheistic faith worshiping the same God, just using different names? Well, there's going to be a graphic that's going to pop up, and the answer to that is no. Listen, we would affirm to the scriptures of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. So we're saying, yes, there is one God. We believe in monotheism. However, the God of biblical Christianity, the God of Judaism, and the God of Islam have very similar attributes on some of these key points because, as a matter of fact, in his prayer, when he starts praying, we don't really have any problem with his prayer because it says, to the eternal God, to the creator, to the one who is priestly, to a God who is present. And he says, Lord, over and over and over and over, and then concludes to the monotheistic God, Brahma, and a God by many different names of many different faiths. Well, if we look at this for a second, we go, okay, the God of biblical Christianity... Judaism, Judaism and Islam, they all believe in one God, that that God is eternal, that that God is transcendent, that that God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. However, we have some problems that we're going to kind of even unpack with that. But obviously you can see where we really defer is in the name and the person of Jesus. Because biblical Christianity affirms the Trinity and affirms Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so just kind of quickly, so in this idea of of Islam, when they follow their true sources, which is the Quran and then Muhammad's writings, the Hadith, it again very much is like kind of Hinduism where there is this idea of your good deeds needing to outweigh your bad deeds and trying to make sure that you adhere to the five pillars of the faith, that you adhere to these writings and these teachings and that you do those things. And even then, their scriptures teach that Allah may not necessarily save you, that he may not grant you mercy So there's this constant turmoil. There's this constant tension. There's a couple ways in which they think they can get guaranteed paradise. And it also speaks to why there's so much violence at times. And so this is not the same true source. This is not the same God because Allah is not knowable and not relatable from that perspective. Nor can he be deemed as just because he himself has done nothing to reconcile the sin problem. The God of Judaism, we get our basis. Our, the biblical Christianity finds its roots in Judaism. We go back to the same Old Testament sources. And the God of the Jews, that is one who to, by today's standards is a descendant of Abraham or a convert, would go back and their true sources would be like ours, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have the rest of the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament. But then they also throw in the Talmud, which is oral traditions that have been passed down for years. And so now they have to adhere to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they have to adhere to the Talmud, which are these oral traditions passed down. And so in addition to the 613 commandments found in Leviticus and the other uh, books, uh, the first five books of the Bible, they've got to adhere to the Talmud. And so you've got all these things they have to 
adhere to. And so Yahweh, the God of Judaism, is not necessarily relatable in this manner. And where the whole fabric of our agreement falls apart is they are still awaiting the Messiah. Therefore, they do not believe you have to trust in the Messiah because it hasn't come yet. They're still awaiting the Messiah to come. Whereas we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away our sins. And we affirm this, and so when we begin looking at this, what does God's word say about it? That's why we begin to look at how these faith, these faith systems interact with one another. And what we can say is by looking at the true sources, by looking at the copies that would drive our life and existence, we can say that these faiths operate in contradiction, not in concert with one another. So we are not just on a highway to the same destination. That's a problem. And to end any prayer other than the name of Jesus is blasphemy. This is what God's inerrant word says about himself. The first thing we must affirm is the Trinity. We have one God in three persons. And we see this all throughout. We even see in John 10, 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So one God, three persons. We still very much affirm Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And we see the interaction of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit several times in Scripture. One key moment is Jesus' baptism when Jesus, the Son of God, is being baptized. And the Father says, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And so we see the Trinity in that singular moment. And then we have the great commission, which is a commandment, an expectation, a concern of God. When Jesus says that he has all authority and that in that authority to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in. And so in other words, the salvation, the recognized salvation of every believer will be found and it'll be stamped in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we believe in the Trinity, and we believe that the second member of that Trinity is Jesus. And we believe that Jesus came into this world in the incarnation. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a good moral teacher, because he himself claimed to be God. Those things would cancel each other out. But that Jesus came into this world to take away our sins. And so we believe in the hypostatic union through the incarnation. That is that God is, that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. He's fully God because he was perfect and sinless and holy. And he is co all those attributes that the father has. And so he has all these same attributes. So Jesus is fully God. But at the same time, Jesus walked a sinless life as a man in this life because he had to suspend certain rights so that he could die. Because God can't die. And so to fulfill his purpose for coming, the son of man, it was necessary for him to come and suffer many things. To be rejected, to be killed, to be buried, and three days later raised from the grave for our sins. We mustn't be ashamed to say the name of Jesus. Jesus himself was very exclusive in his teachings when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one shall enter the Father but through me. And so as we begin to look 
at some of these attributes quickly, we can see who our God is. And through those attributes, how he relates to us and how we are meant to relate with him and how he didn't leave open any interpretation for any other God. And because Jesus and the Father are one, then Jesus himself as the radiant glory of God, the exact representation of the Father on this earth, it means Jesus holds all the same attributes. So when you read in your scriptures, God is, or the Lord is, then you can also insert the name of Jesus there. And so that's what we're going to do. Where it would say God is supreme, we can say Jesus is supreme, Deuteronomy 17.10. Listen, for the truth claim that there be a supreme God, that means that all of those claims are saying we cancel out any other idea that there is another supreme God. You cannot have multiple supremes unless you're having tacos. To have one supreme is one supreme. And Jesus is supreme. Deuteronomy 17.10, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, awe-inspiring God. Jesus is eternal. Psalm 92 says that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus is creator. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. That's Elohim, the plural. So in other words, he is the creator. Jesus is omnipotent. Revelation 19, 6. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Jesus is omnipresent. Psalm 139 says, you cannot flee the presence of God. Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Psalm 147 says, his wisdom and understanding are infinite. 1 John 3.20 says he knows all things. Jesus is holy. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is love, 1 John 4.8. Jesus is righteous and just, Psalm 89.14. He's merciful, compassionate, gracious, gracious, and slow to anger, abounding in love. And that slow to anger means that he can still get angry and that he is also a God of wrath. So he's merciful and gracious, but at the same time a God of wrath. Why? Because his wrath rests upon sin. And the Father's wrath rests upon sin. And his wrath cannot pass over you. And the mercies and grace of God cannot rest upon you unless the blood of Jesus covers you. That is the only way to be saved. And so to, to make this prayer, this generalization that we can talk about any old God, and we're all worshiping the same one, is a fallacy. And it is very damning to the rest of your life if you live according to that, because we weren't given that opportunity. We were given the opportunity to be reconciled to the Father through the blood of the Son, and his name is Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is what he's getting at. If you look at Mark 8 again, in 31, Jesus says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. What he's trying to say is, you know what concerns me more than anything else? Jesus is saying, where you're going to spend eternity concerns me more than anything else. And anything that gets in the way of that, even if it seems like it's better or a better idea or a better version or an improvement upon the word of God is a message from Satan. Because what he came to do was die the death that we couldn't die. 
to pay the price we couldn't pay so that we could be reconciled for all of eternity in the presence of the Father. And we mustn't be ashamed to say the name of Jesus ever, ever. Matter of fact, Scripture says where we are ashamed to say him, he'll be ashamed of us. Jesus, when he's saying to Peter, you're right for calling me the Messiah, the anointed one, he's saying, you're right. Because the anointed one, the one that was anointed, it was the one, singular, who could pay that penalty for us. They were waiting expectantly for that one. And Jesus says, I am him. He is claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who could be the savior of the world and take away our sins. It matters. It matters because it will drive how we live our life every single day. He is fulfilling the messianic prophecies. One such passage is Hosea 6, 2, and 3, where it says, He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise up so that we can live in his presence. So let us strive to know the Lord. And we know him by his name, Jesus. That was his mission. That was his purpose. His greatest concern was so that he could die for us, so that we could receive his death in our place and be covered by his blood so that we could live eternally in the presence of the Father. We must make sure we're communicating that to everybody around us because it matters. If you want to know how God relates to us, just think about that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Colossians 1, 19 through 22 says, God, for God, this is the Father, for God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his, again, that is Jesus, through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless. And once again, Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other name that we can call upon. The most important question you will ever be asked is by Jesus, and it is, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? That, the answering of that question will drive the course of your life. Your purpose, your desires, your ambitions, how you walk with him in obedience or disobedience. Jesus must be your Savior, your Messiah, the one who paid that debt. You must receive his work of the cross because there's nothing you can do because our God is just. He dealt justly with sin through the shedding of the blood of his perfect son to make us holy and faultless and blameless. That is the God we worship, and we better not be ashamed of it. And we better not substitute anything else in that claim because it's no different than going through the Old Testament when they were seeking the help of Baal. We better be seeking the help of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And to answer the question, who do you say I am? We say, you're my Savior and you're my Lord and I'm going to reconcile my life under you. And I'm going to surrender it completely, wholly and fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. And you truly are the King of kings and Lord of lords and we exalt your great name. 
We come before you, Lord, and even just thinking about the fact that we get to come before you is miraculous in and of itself because we get to come before your throne because of the work of your son, Jesus. Because you have made us worthy to come before you through the work of your worthy son, Jesus. And so I pray for anyone in this room that has never taken a deep inventory of that question, who do you say I am? And has answered the question of who Jesus is to them. Whether he's just a great ideology. A man with a great message who did great things. Or taking the deep inventory and stop to consider that maybe he's so much more. That he is what he claimed to be. And he is what you say he is. That he is the son of God. The son of man. The one who came to take away our sins. And to reconcile us so that we may live at peace for all of eternity in your presence. Father, if there's anybody in this room that has not answered that question, Lord, I pray that you would burden them and put it on their heart and convict them so that they would answer that question today, that they would process it and they would truly, for the first time in their life, want to make you their Savior, to make you their Messiah, the anointed one who came for them. And Lord, for anybody in this room, for all of us that have made the statement that you are the Messiah, you are the Lord and Savior of our lives. Lord, I pray that we'd live our life in accordance. Unashamedly. We would proclaim your good news and we would proclaim your truths and we would truly be concerned with who you are because we can see through who you are that you're concerned with love and how we interact with with one another in brotherly love and how we interact with one another in kindness and mercy and grace and how we gently love one another in truth and how we pray for one another and how we show up for each other, how we are present people because you're a present God. That's what concerns you. Father, may we surrender our life in full submission of who you are. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.